Jordan in like 95, you know, finals where he was sick and someone asked me if I was going to hit the, the fadeaway jumper and I don't know if I'm going to, so we'll see. Um, I can't play basketball. Good exercise. Um, that's pretty hot. Um, well, this is, uh, I've been actually looking forward to uh, the sermon um, this is probably why I'm feeling sick. It's because uh, the Lord's going to make me very much dependent upon Him. I guess I just kind of gravitate towards uh, uh, difficult things. And so this is one of those um, difficult and controversial passages in this letter in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 8-15. through 15. Perhaps maybe even in the old, whole New Testament. Um, I, I enjoy preaching straight through books. Uh, and the reason why is because... When you get to something that's difficult, you really can't skip around it. You just kind of keep going, and you basically say, blame the Bible, blame God, and you kind of step back and say, I'm just the messenger, and it's beautiful. Uh, but you'll see that I think most churches, and I don't say most as in we're better or, or, or worse, but just that most churches and pastors um, will avoid passages like this uh, because they are very hard words that are um, they fear being misunderstood or perhaps worse, understood, and then people, uh, you know, flee because of what you said. Um, but know that Paul's words, when they were first written, they were just as difficult as they are today, uh, thousands of years later. Second uh, Peter 3.15, as Peter speaking about Paul in his writings, and he says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him. And as... He does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, in Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So not only to put Paul's writings on the level of scripture, but he says they're hard to understand and people often twist them and make them believe or say what they want to believe. So I'm warning you before we begin that uh, some of you are going to want to reject Paul's words. Uh, and you're not going to like what they said because they're hard to understand. And he talks about the roles of men and women in church. And it could be that you simply don't know or never heard what the Bible's actually taught on this. Or it could be, for some of you, that something um, other than the authority of Scripture is actually dictating your doctrine. Which may be more... Um, more common. And I say that because um, there's a couple different ways people can do this. Sometimes people put culture over Scripture. And I say that because our culture is not too friendly in, or friendly to people who draw lines between the sexes for anything. If you start saying this is what females should be doing or males should be doing, husbands, wives, whatever, um, you get somewhat ostracized or at least called narrow-minded. Um, so in the name of reaching the culture or demonstrating the grace of Jesus, I say that sarcastically a little bit, or in uh, uh, hopes of keeping people in your church, Scripture often takes a back seat to what the culture says is popular of the day. And so people in churches, you've seen this commonly, they start affirming stuff rather than discerning stuff, and culture, uh, or what is popular, begins to dictate what's right. Some people, though, take tradition over Scripture. And I say tradition because this is the, the church people, the religious people. And Jesus didn't uh, have much, many nice things to say to the Pharisees in Matthew 15 who chose traditions over what the Bible said. Chose to follow their religiosity rather than following God. And so church traditions sometimes impact uh, the way we view Scripture and dictate it at times. 
And so whether it's a denomination you grew up in or just the, the time you spent in a church for, you know, a, a good experience you had, you get to this, like, they've all, we've always done it this way or this is what you know, I was always taught and we let that dictate as we go into Scripture what is right and, and what is wrong. And so it becomes Scripture, that is, becomes a tool to defend or to judge what I already know or what my tradition is rather than Scripture judging our traditions and whether they're actually valid. Um, so that's the, a couple others. Emotion sometimes gets over Scripture. This happened in my own family when basically something the Bible calls as sin and then suddenly comes into your family and you're like, well, we need to affirm that, right, because it makes this person happy. And this person's a good person. I like this person. I had a great experience with this person. And so that begins to dictate what we actually believe or at least influence it a little bit. And if we're not careful, the emotions, I think, that are connected with a person or an experience begin to govern other parts of Scripture that it shouldn't. And relationship with others begins to trump our relationship with Jesus. And I've seen this, again, firsthand with friends, with family. And we start looking at other scriptures and kind of throwing out what we, we don't like because it makes us feel bad or someone else feel bad. Or it doesn't make us feel good. So what feel good or feels good begins to dictate scripture. And the last one is, I think, the intellect starts overcoming or being authority over scripture. When we don't understand something, we basically reject it. And our ability to, to know or to figure out or to fully understand becomes the final authority whether I'm going to accept it or not. And this will often lead us into selecting or focusing on particular truths that we like and then avoiding the ones that, you know, like as in understand and avoiding the ones that are just, oh, that's just too hard to talk about. Predestination, like, I, let's just stay away from those because I don't get it fully. How does God's sovereignty and free will work? I no. So we avoid it because it doesn't make sense to us. And so uh, we begin to ignore, as I said, difficult passages like today. And what makes sense to us begins to dictate what, we, what is right or wrong. And so some of you, honestly, culture dictates what's right for you. And it's funny, sometimes you'll quote Bible verses that aren't even the Bible. God helps those that help themselves. Not in the Bible, Okay. But it becomes part of culture, so you all, well, you know, I just go with what I've heard. Some people, you've been in denominations or grew up in denominations or church traditions, that you go, well, this is all wrong. And I'm just asking, that, and some of you have experiences, some have, you know, obviously we're, we're all intelligent, we'll assume, okay? But you can't let those things be authoritative over Scripture, especially when they conflict. So my prayer is um, that you understand that sound doctrine doesn't become corrupted overnight. It becomes corrupted very slowly. You start just going a little inch off, and within a matter of days, months, years, you're miles away from where you're supposed to be. And my prayer is that as we study this passage, we're not going to fight for culture or fight for our church tradition or fight for emotion or even fight for intellect, but for biblical truth, even if it offends all those things. Because we want to be biblical, not necessarily emotional. There are things that, honestly... And that's why I guess I believe so wholeheartedly of scriptures that confront what I feel I would like to do. And if my emotions are dictating it, then happiness will be the determiner for what I do in my life. And that's not good. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 8 through 15, I'll read this and we'll get right into it. Paul speaking, he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. 
Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. That's uh, Seriously, that verse right there has caused so many issues in Christianity. People don't like it, and they hate the one next even more. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. How does that one make you feel, ladies? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived. I'm adding inflection there. I doubt Paul wrote it that way. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she'll be saved through childbearing. Oh, fantastic. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So let's break this down. Uh, by saying, I desire then. Okay, by starting the passage in verse 8 there, Paul is connecting what he had said in the first part of chapter 2 that Mark preached on last week. So after in chapter 1 saying doctrine's important to the, you know, the first letter to this pastor, doctrine is important that you need to confront the wolves that are teaching falsely. He then in chapter 2 commands for prayers to be made for all people, all kings, all leaders, even all pastors, because that's probably what's happened in this church, the elders have gone astray. Even those guys, the wolves, you're supposed to pray for. Because God desires, he says, all men to be saved. He desires all men to be saved through knowing the truth. And the truth is not just a bunch of facts that, you know, you accept and you get a better or more prosperous life. The truth is a person. Jesus called himself the truth. And that is who we're talking about. It's accepting Christ. And Paul says that he was appointed an apostle and a teacher at the end of that first part of chapter 2 to proclaim that. To proclaim the news of the gospel that what Jesus has done in history to bring us back to him, these broken, rebellious, dirty people that we are. That's what he says I'm supposed to do. And that's how we should be praying for our leaders. And he says, in other words, that knowing this, knowing that proclaiming the gospel is his job, and all of our jobs ultimately, in every place, the men should lead in these prayers. The men should lead in these prayers. Now, it means much more than, than praying, although I think we could do a lot worse than saying men need to pray more. Okay? But that's not what it's talking about. We're talking about leadership in a worship service as they would pray, not posture, all those things. You'll see all kinds of commentaries going to like, well, we should pray, lifting up holy hands. It's talk, let's just talk about the heart of what's being spoken here, which is spiritual teaching and prayers. That are happening. Remember, Paul is writing, and you see this in 1 Timothy 3.15, to young Timothy of, quote, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. He's teaching them about church, about being together in the assembly, about being gathered as the people of God. So Paul uses the phrase here, every place, he only uses it four times in his letters. And every time he uses it, he refers to the assembly of the church. So the whole context of this passage is talking about the assembly of the church in a public worship gathering. Most likely in Ephesus, there were probably several expressions of that. It's a big city. But we're not just talking about, you know, outside of the worship service. We're talking about this worship service that's happening. And he says, men 
should be the spiritual leaders in the church assembly. Period. And this is not to denigrate women, although that's initially, I think, where some of our emotions may go. Genesis 1.27 says very clearly that God made male and females both in his image. They are both equal. They are both uh, representatives, if you will, of God. And in most of Paul's letters, Paul goes to great lengths to elevate the role of women. He always speaks highly of women, even women who are teaching things. God made men and women equal, but he also made them, which doesn't take a rocket scientist or an author to figure out, uniquely different with different roles, definitely different ways of thinking, different ways of doing, and different responsibilities. Now, right after hammering the importance of sound doctrine for a large chunk, right, the first thing Paul wants to do in speaking to this church that has false teachers teaching things, as in the first thing that kind of gets twisted is the roles of men and women. It's the first thing he hits. Now, he does this in a very unique way, I think, by explaining how men and women both fail to meet their roles. How they both fail to fulfill by charging them, this is what you need to do, implied you're not doing it. So men will hit you first. Sorry I didn't tell you to bring your cup because you're going to need it. But men, like their father Adam, the reality is they fail to lead when they're silent. As Eve took the fruit, Adam was sitting there watching. Most likely heard everything that the serpent said. So he sat there silent. And so when men fail to pray, in the most general and particular sense, when they fail to fight for truth, when they fail to confront the wolves, when they fail to teach the flock or your family, you fail to lead. And when men fail to lead, the church and your own family will be destroyed by sin. Guaranteed may take a little bit of time, but it will happen. Some of you have experienced it with bad pastor dads, bad churches. I pray that we don't experience that here, but I'm not prideful enough to believe that men who are leading won't screw up. But like the second Adam, Jesus, men are to lead in the worship of God. Men are to lead in serving. Take that as you will. Men are to lead in praying. Men are to lead in teaching. Men are to set the example. And men are to take responsibility when things go bad. Why? Because exactly what Jesus did. Gave us a prime example of how to lead. And so Paul sets the stage in talking about the gathering of the church and about worship services, starting with men. That's where he starts. Just one verse, but he starts there. And the reality is, there doesn't seem to be, and I, you know, I'm in church leadership now, so it's kind of hard to, to say that without uh, sounding like I'm talking about myself positively. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of strong male leaders in the church at all anymore. I mean, large evangelical Christianity. There are some, maybe there are many, but it doesn't seem like there's very strong male leaders anymore. And Paul says men are to lift up holy hands, Okay, And holy hands, that, that reference is more about the purity of their lives. It's not actually 
lifting up hands, although you know, I could see a couple guys lifting up their hands in here, and we would do you know, pretty good to do that every now and then. Okay, you frozen chosen people. So it's okay to lift your hand every now and then. But men who lift holy hands are supposed to live pure, godly, transparent, unashamed, and above reproach lives. And unfortunately, many men who lead or have led have abused their role as leaders in our lives. They truly have, and everyone knows it, and he says, pray with holy, lift up holy hands and pray, and don't get angry and quarrel, because that's typically what happens. They're angry, they control, they fight, and they destroy people rather than build up for all kinds of selfish motivations. That's a typical leader. We like to describe them, like, quite frankly, I'm not saying that there's, there's Acts 29, a bunch of terrible pastors, but there's this type A personality that is almost used as like this thing to, to be glorified. And a lot of the type A personalities you've probably interacted with in the world are jerks. Because they want to get things done. And you like, you like to have them there to get things done, but they often bulldoze over people. Abusive leader. And then other men, maybe more common, abandon their roles as leaders altogether. It's more common for men not to lift their hands at all. Figuratively speaking. And they put their hands in their pockets, and they ignore sin. They're indifferent toward the needs of others. They work very hard to avoid conflict. And they refuse to build up anything that's going to require sacrifice. So you have abusive leadership, and you have leadership that abandons. Both terrible. And typically what happens, though, with what Adam did, where he abandoned his leadership, a void is created where someone has to lead. Someone has to lead, and usually in churches and in families, that void is filled by women. Now, there are a few churches, there are a few, that are being pastored by women today. Maybe you can name some. But there are many more churches, I believe, and families that are being pastored and titled by men, but led by women. And there's all kinds of ways to identify that, but I believe me, that's happening. Failed churches and failed families are the result of failed leadership of men. And when the churches and the families are not led by godly men, men submitted to Jesus, we see the effects of it in our church and family and culture. The entire feminist movement, Okay? That was the result of failure of men. They either abused their leadership or they abandoned it. Either way, there was a void created or they were treated, the women were treated poorly, and so they like, I have to do something. Failure of men, failure of men, failure of men. In the verse 9-11, though, this is not to say, as we talk about that, that as we say, men should be leading, men should be leading, that women aren't capable of or gifted in leading. There are many women that are capable, gifted leaders. Without question. I'm married to one. Okay? But we are saying that God didn't design, expect, or desire them to fill the voids left by men in the family or the church. Regardless of what culture says, or emotions say, or experiences, or what just kind of makes sense, leadership that is not 
in line with God's design will eventually lead to sin. So in verse 9 through 11, Paul shifts his focus to the women and their roles in the church. And this is where things get a little bit controversial as I started reading. And I believe that any church that begins to walk away from gospel-centered doctrine, that's where it starts, that's why I hate it on chapter 1, where your doctrine's messed up, you really don't talk about Jesus very much, talk about the seven steps to a good life, whatever, maybe mention the cross every now and then, but we're not really talking about the gospel. What does gospel finances look like, gospel love, gospel marriage, all these things. When you begin to lose that, ultimately, you begin to ignore other, quote, minor theological issues. That's how it starts, little. And so, he says in verse 9, women should adorn themselves in respectable peril and modesty, and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness and good works. And let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. So like men, women fail in their own unique way in fulfilling their roles. And he tells Timothy to instruct the women to, in the church assembly to concern themselves with adorning their hearts and not their skin. To exercise self-control and modesty. That seems like a simple instruction. Women, and this is not a big surprise, men, women are often overly concerned with appearances. Not that you shouldn't be concerned about appearances at all. I'm glad that my wife is concerned about her appearances to some extent. But they get overly concerned, and what happens is, not only do they overly concern with their own appearances, but everyone else's. And that begins ultimately to lead to pride, and that's where gossip comes from, and that's ultimately where sexual immorality comes from, where you stay on the surface. In any church, any church that's starting to get sick and die, any church that's beginning to get unhealthy, you will find two things. Men who are quiet, pansy, girly men. And women, honestly, who are loud and manly. That's what you will find in any church that's starting to get sick. doesn't mean it's too late to turn around the boat, but that guarantee what you'll find. Loud in every sense of the word. Okay? Now, when men fail to keep the church or family centered on heart truths, on the gospel, oftentimes unrestrained women, and I just say this, I know women are just hating me right now, but I'm going to say it anyway. Unrestrained women. Unrestrained, that is, you don't have good leaders. That's what I mean. They will shift the church toward an unhealthy focus on cosmetic issues, on surface stuff, about what stuff is pretty and what's not, why we don't have this and what not. And right and wrong become exactly as it did to Eve, what is a delight to the eyes and not what is according to God's word. That's what happens. The people, both men and women, will become a church desperate to appear beautiful to each other and to the world, Desperate to be attractive and desirable, all for the wrong reasons. That's why you see churches letting go of theology, because that's not attractive to people. We want to dress it up. Let's throw up 15 inflatables out there and let everyone come in. That's what we like. That's what happens. God's charge for women is, I think, the same charge for the church, because this is not just women. This is for the church at large. And that is, we are to look beautiful for the right reasons, because our hearts will dictate our appearance. Guaranteed. 
Then he talks about learning and submissiveness, which just, again, probably feels yucky. And we're not trying to vilify women, but again, we're talking about the failure of men. Now, Paul continues, just as he identified men's weaknesses in leading and not talking, women fail to fill the role by talking too much and trying to lead where they shouldn't. Now, without question, I will admit to this, confess this, although it's hard to confess other people's sins, and hopefully I've not been convicted or or condemned myself doing this. The church historically has done a really cruddy job of treating women the way they should be treated. That is without question. But that shouldn't make us ashamed of what the Bible teaches. Because that's the reaction. We treat them so badly, we need to swing the pendulum back and it swings back too far. So at Damascus Road, we agree with Paul that all women should study their Bibles, that all women should learn theology, that all women should even take seminary classes if they so desire. But our shared opinion, us and Paul's, is very different than when Paul is writing here in Rome. During Rome, women were second-class citizens. Intellectually inferior, academically inferior. That's why they arranged the entire education system around training men. So Paul teaches something, even here, to say learn as something entirely countercultural. Women aren't supposed to learn, but he says learn. Women should learn. And he does say, however, that women should learn quietly, identifying what their typical weakness is. But the reality is, it's not talking about silence. It's talking about the attitude of learning. It's talking about the respect and the demeanor when you are learning. And this is really the only way anyone can learn, not just women. You've got to stop talking. So Paul says that they must learn, and they must learn with all submissiveness. Okay, here's another dirty word, submissiveness. Now, let me just remind you that there is no such thing as partial submissiveness. You can't halfway submit. I mean, you can, I guess, in, a, in some kind of MMA fight, kind of, but... Wouldn't work out too well. The arm would be snapped. But remember, Paul uses the same word submissiveness to talk about men at times, to talk about wives, to talk about husbands and submission to the Lord, to talk about the church, to talk about children, submission to their parents. We're not talking about better or worse. We're talking about a hierarchy of design that God has put in place to his glory. And so partial submissiveness, if you say, well, I'm going to learn with partial submissiveness, because he makes a point to say all submissiveness, means you reserve the right to complain and to grumble and to resent and to go, you know, you're talking about. And that's really not submission at all. It's not submission, do whatever I say, submission. But it's submission to, in particular, godly leaders within the church to say, I'm going to listen. I'm going to seek for understanding. It doesn't mean I'm never going to ask a question but I'm going to ask it in a respectful way. Now, the kind of submission we're talking about is really difficult to find in our world because it's very perverted, but it's not difficult to find in the Bible because it's where Jesus lived it out. Jesus himself lived out submission. See, unbiblical submission says there's either no authority at all, so I don't submit to anyone but myself, or I'm not going to submit to you because you're abusive. I understand that. It's natural. But biblical submission is authority like Jesus exercised, where your authority is in first submission to God. 
I used to tell that to high school girls that come, oh, they're crying about their boyfriends. I'm like, yeah, you're dumb. What do you mean? Oh, right. Well, tell me, why do you like this guy? He's funny. Okay, let's take funny, honest, and all the other general things you're going to say about him. What do you like about him? Never could come up with anything. Just like him for some reason. Okay, what do you think I should do? I think you should not date in high school. I think you should dump him and concern yourself with more important things. Why? Is he a Christian? No, and this isn't speaking to Christian girls, although there are a couple, I'm sure. Okay. Is he a Christian? No, I wouldn't follow him. Why? Because he's his own Lord. He does what he wants. He is king of his own kingdom. He makes his own decision. He is submission to no one. A Christian, I mean a Christian, a gospel-centered, Jesus-loving Christian, hard to find. There are fewer than more. But a Christian boy, if you will, is in submission to the Lord. First and foremost, he has an authority. So if he abuses or abandons, he has failed to lead, and he is being punished or should be punished by the authority, which is God, who will take care of all things. But biblical submission is submission to God. It is authority that's humble like Jesus, authority that serves like Jesus, authority that loves like Jesus, authority that's gracious and merciful like Jesus, an authority that is also uncompromising with the truth, like Jesus. That's the model for authority we have. So when we talk about submission, it is to biblical authority. So just because someone's a pastor, should I submit to them? No, not if they're not biblical. You should run from that church. That's the truth. But if they're godly leaders, if they're biblically qualified leaders, which is that's the reason he has chapter 3, the next page, here is what makes a qualified leader. That's the test. But why would you stay in a place where they don't have biblically qualified leaders and just cause problems? Often what happens? It is good and wonderful thing to submit to God-given, Scripture-qualified authority. It's not easy, but it's good. And I am in submission, as all the elders are in submission, to one another. It's not like Sam calls the shots. I could very easily be fired if I am unbiblical or if I am caught in sin and should be. If I puke on the stage, that's forgivable. But (laughs) there's a bunch of other things that are not. So verse 12, without hesitating after that first punch of like, yep, learn, submit. Oh man, he comes with his second punch. And he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. According to the Jerusalem Talmud, this is how the Jews felt. They believed that it would be better for the words of the Torah to be burned than they should be entrusted to a woman. They were pretty, uh, pretty serious about it. At Damascus Road, we don't hold to that as they would. But we believe that the Holy Spirit equips many women with the spiritual gift of teaching. We do think it's a spiritual gift, and we do think women have it. Not all women, but there are women that have it. And that God intends them to use their gift to edify the church. And we believe that women can be deacons in our church. We believe that women can lead worship in our church. We believe that women can teach Bible studies in our church. We believe that women can lead ministries in our church. But we believe that Scripture dictates that teaching as an elder or pastor, we 
Equate the two. We'll talk about that next week. Teaching as a pastor in the highest office of authority in the church is not permitted to a woman. That's what we believe. That's one of our distinctions. That's one of the lines that we draw. It's one of the lines that Acts 29 draws. And they're unpopular and popular at the same time for it. It's easier not to draw lines. Teaching in this context has a specific meaning, especially in the pastoral letters. It was what the apostles did. It's what the elders did. And to preach is to exercise authority in the church. And that role, we believe, is reserved for a man found qualified and called according to Scripture. And there have been several misusings of this passage. They've just abused it. That they say, no women should teach any man anything. We don't believe that. As I said, there are women who have been gifted with leadership and teaching, and there are several examples where women taught men in Scripture, but not as a pastor, not in this particular office. And many will say, your emotions will start running up, but, but I've seen, I've known Women who were pastors and they were awesome and they were great people. And the question is never what works. The question is always what's biblical. Yes, it would be much easier to not take a stand like this. Way easier. But it may not and I believe would not be biblical. Some people say that all men can teach women. Eh, Wrong. Wrong. The truth is that most men are not permitted to be pastors in the church. So it's limited to men as well as it is to women. Or limiting, I should say. Just because you're a man does not mean you can teach. It doesn't mean you can teach. Not all men can teach. Not all men get divinity degrees or even desire to pastor. Some who get divinity degrees shouldn't pastor, and some who don't get divinity degrees should. But all husbands and fathers are responsible to teach their home. All of them. And if you're responsible to be the resident theologian of your home, and you go, I don't feel equipped, best start doing your homework then. Best start doing your homework. Well, my wife knows everything, and, you know, she answers my questions, and um, it's time to go to school, buddy. You've got to start answering her questions. I get tired of getting emails from wives, and my first question is, why haven't you asked your husband this question? Wrestle together with it. You have to take responsibility for that. But it doesn't mean that you can go teach all men or all women. And the other way it's abused is that all women must submit to all men. Wrong. This is the same mistake people make in Ephesians 5 where it says wives are submit to their own husbands. Their own husbands. Not all husbands. Their own husbands. The men permitted to speak, the men to whom the women are expected to submit to and learn from, are the qualified men in this passage, the pastors, to show respect. And the men could learn the same thing. We'll end with, we'll get to the last part here, verses 13 to 14. He ends this portion of his instructions for the church with a couple strange statements. 
One's been again abused and misunderstood. Verse 13 says, For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So some will argue today that female pastor issues is the result of the fall, that the women leaders are only subordinate to men because of that. Um, then there are others who argue that it is because of the uh, existence in Ephesus at the time of this feminazi cult to Diana, and they had lots of women issues, and so they just, you know, are dealing with it, and that's why Paul is speaking to the culture here in a particular time and place, and it doesn't really apply today. There is a great danger, I believe, in suggesting that certain passages of Scripture only have local or transient application. You can begin dismissing all kinds of things. Say, well, that doesn't, that's not for today. Well, that's not for today. It is clear that Paul's reference to the Garden of Eden before the fall, that his charge is not the result of sin or it's not a cultural matter. It's part of God's perfect plan and design that men were formed to lead and women were formed to help them lead. And we must avoid the extreme, I think, of legalistic literalism that says women shouldn't be in all ministries, but we also must avoid this liberal cultural side that says women can do whatever and ignore the rest of Scripture, in particular, I think, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In the Garden of Eden, Eve ignored God's design, and she chose to lead instead of follow. That's what happened. And when she stepped out and led, instead of submitting to Adam's leadership... As weak as it was, instead of submitting to ultimately God's leadership, she followed Satan. She gave in to her temptation. And Adam, who for a moment was sinless with a sinful wife, if you think about that, for a moment, he chose to follow her into her sin instead of lead away from it. And the fall was complete. And the notable difference was it says that Adam, I'm sorry, Eve uh, was deceived and Adam was not. And we go, oh, what's that mean? This does not show us that women are weaker, though they are called the weaker vessels in Scripture. But think of that in terms of um, a hammer and a, and a teacup. Doug Wilson talks about this. You're not going to hit a nail with a teacup and you're not going to drink tea from a hammer. Right? They're not... Better or worse, they're just two different things for two different tasks. So this passage doesn't say that women are weaker, that Adam is, is less responsible, or that Eve is to blame for everything. Eve was certainly responsible for her sin, but Adam, it says, wasn't deceived. Not meaning that he was smarter and didn't fall for the temptation, but that he wasn't tempted directly. And I personally think it's much worse. Eyes wide open. He walked and followed Eve into sin. And ultimately, God held, Paul talks about it in Romans 5, man responsible, not woman, for the fall of humanity. So it all goes back to men again. Sorry, guys. When God came into the garden, he came looking for Adam. When he wanted to know what happened, he asked Adam what he had done. And in response, what did Adam try to do? Blame Eve. It's a woman you gave me. She filled the void that I wasn't le- Oh. He went in and blamed God, too. The woman that you gave me. Husbands, 
Catch this, please. You cannot blame your strong wives, your gifted wives, and pastors. They cannot blame their strong female leaders for their failure to lead their churches or their families in biblical truth. You can't do it. The responsibility is on you. And the last verse he gives us is kind of freaky. A little confusing. It says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they, childbearing if they, speaking of all women, continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. There's several ways that all commentators agree or disagree about this passage. So um, I'm going to approach it two different ways. One is, I believe that what this is talking about is that women are going to be saved through the fulfillment of their God-given role. The word translated persevered or saved here is the common New Testament word for salvation, but the word can also mean to heal or to set free or to deliver from. And today, sin causes women, I believe, to think that talking instead of listening, rebelling instead of submitting, and leading instead of following is the way to success. And this belief is not from God. That belief is from the fall. And when there is an abandonment or an abuse of leadership in the church or at home, their greatest temptation is going to be to fill it. And I realize there are some families, I know, for example, a family that's a friend of mine where the father completely failed, threw his life away from alcohol, and the mom had to lead. I understand that. The point is, that's a necessity not God's design, and the responsibility for all the brokenness that's going to come as a result is on that man. I do believe, though, that women will find their greatest joy and freedom in fulfilling their God-given role as women helping to raise godly churches and godly families. Helping men lead. Encouraging men to lead. Following men as they lead. Implied, men are leading. But the second and final way, I think, to translate the passage, and some theologians will say this is a stretch, but I don't think so. It's not that women are literally saved through birth of a child, but that we're all saved through the birth of the child, Jesus. Now, it was earlier in the chapter that Paul made the point that we're saved through the one mediator, and here all men and women, I believe, are saved through the birth of that one Savior. And the idea echoes the very thing God said in the Garden of Eden. After the fall, the child of Eve would crush the head of Satan, he said in his curse. He says, you're going to have a kid, there's going to be Jesus, didn't say that, and he's going to crush the head of Satan, destroy sin and death, and it's where Adam ultimately set his hope. Why? Because immediately following the curse, he names Eve, Eve. Up to that point, she was just named Woman. He named her Eve. He chose the name of his bride right there, knowing what God had just said, what means the mother of all living. That's where he set his hope. And the fact that through her was going to come a Savior. And without women, the reality is there would be no salvation at all. So instead of viewing pastors as chauvinistic, or even Jesus as chauvinistic for his 12 male disciples he had, 
or looking at churches who hold this view as narrow-minded or out of touch, I pray that we see men like Paul elevating the beauty and importance of women and brides and mothers as part of the gospel itself. The incarnation. It's part of the story. And failure to live out our roles as men and as women is not just a bad idea or a cultural issue. It is a failure to believe and live the gospel. It goes back to the very thing that Paul reminded us in chapter 1. The most important thing to believe is the gospel. Yes, Galatians 3 says that in Christ, everyone is equal. Slaves, free, men, women. Doesn't mean they're the same. And I pray that today, if you are a man, as you come to take communion, don't go through the routine. Maybe you do every Sunday. But confess your failure to lead. Maybe you've abused. Maybe you've abandoned. And if you're a woman, confess your failure to follow for all kinds of reasons. Well, he doesn't deserve this. He doesn't deserve X, Y, Z. Good thing Jesus didn't say that to you, i.e. gospel. If you fulfill your roles as men and women and we fulfill them as a church, the gospel will go forward and it will transform hearts. But if we compromise at any point, even a little minor point like this, we think, it will lead us away from truth and towards sin. Let's pray. Father God, we just uh, humbly bow before you for teaching us things that I think offend us, Lord. And I pray that we will follow your word. That we will not fall to the temptation to, to twist the scriptures. That we will not fall to the temptation to ignore the scriptures but will be bold enough with the open statement of truth to declare the Scriptures, Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, you will convict our hearts where we are weak as women or as men, that you will make this church a church of men who lead, who love their wives, who help to lead those who have no one to set an example for their sons and daughters. May we be known for a church with godly husbands and godly fathers and godly men. And may we be known as a church with godly women and godly mothers and godly wives who love your word most of all and don't spend time focusing on the surface. May the gospel transform all of us. In your son's blood we pray. Amen.